0: Amen. All right. Well, Romans chapter 5, if you've got a Bible, we're in Romans chapter 5. If you don't, we'll have it on the screen for you. We're going to, the plan is to park in the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5 for the next three Sundays, Lord willing. And this morning, we're really just going to park in the first verse. We'll look at some other things uh, in the passage and go to some other scriptures. Uh, But the themes of Advent, of peace, hope, Joy and love are all, they just drip out of Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. And we'll point back uh, to some more traditional Christmas passages as well as we look at this. But this week as we think about peace and the peace that we have in Christ, you know, for most people, for many people I guess, Christmas is anything but a season of peace for many. Um, they, if they're, you know, maybe you're having financial struggles and you feel like you've got to buy all these gifts and you're just stressed out, so instead of peace you've got anxiety. Some people have difficult relationships with family members and this time of year just kind of highlights that for you and and brings stress in that way. Feel an added pressure and your life begins to feel more like a war or a tug of war than it does peaceful. You know, peace of mind, peace of heart, peace with others, feeling at peace. These are all important things and the Bible speaks, though, of a peace that surpasses all of this, a peace that is more important than any other peace and that is, of course, peace with God. In the end, what matters most in life is if we do or don't have peace with God. Our Christmas tree can be filled underneath with nice gifts. Our homes can be decorated all nice to celebrate the Christmas season, but in the end, do we have peace with God? That's what's ultimately going to matter is whether there is peace between us and our Creator. Now, if you're a Believer, this morning, as believers, we're going to see that we have a peace with God, peace with God that we need to celebrate and live out. And this is something we need to remind ourselves and preach to ourselves time and time again and live in light of. And as we park on that first verse in Romans chapter 5 this morning as we're about to read, we're also going to see that there are many who do not have this peace with God and and everybody Is born without this peace with God. And so this is a critical thing for us to talk about this morning. If you're not a Christian this morning, there's really no more important topic that we can talk about. And if you are a Christian this morning, I'm hoping that this passage will help stir us to to greater love for our neighbor and uh, greater love for our Lord. So look with me at Romans chapter 5. Let's read all 11 verses to get our context this morning. Starting in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. the themes of Advent all through that passage. You heard the words hope, peace. You heard rejoicing a couple of times in there. Joy and love. And in Christ and through his work, the, we, we have these things. And that's, that message, the message of the gospel stands at the very center of Christmas and stands at the very center of this passage. Now in context, Romans chapter 5, we don't want to just kind of pull that out of the Bible. We want to understand where it fits in the Bible and where it fits in Romans. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. And it was written to the church at Rome. And so it's really an incredible book that highlights the power of the gospel. It opens in chapter 1 with, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. That word power means, it's the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. And he's saying the gospel has power to blow up and change your life. The gospel has power to to break strongholds. The gospel has the power to set people free. The gospel is the power of God. And then he just, man, he just blasts through the whole book highlighting the power of the gospel. And he starts with showing us where we were, where humanity is apart from Christ, and he gets into the gospel and the good news of the gospel and the benefits of knowing God through the gospel, and then what it looks like to live in light of the gospel from chapter 12 on. And so when we read this passage in five, chapter 5, verse 1, it starts, the first word is therefore. right? And anytime you see that in the Bible, you've probably heard this before, anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you ask this question, What's that therefore, right? And so he says, therefore, since we've been what? Justified by faith, all right? And so, but he, and he's pointing back, he's summarizing what he's just said. He's, he's wrapping it all up. It points back to the sinfulness of man that he talks about in chapter 1. The justice and judgment of God in chapters 2 and 3. And the righteousness that is revealed in Christ Jesus. And it comes only on the basis of, cha- of faith in chapters 3 and 4. In fact, Romans chapter 4, verse 23, the verse before this one says this, talking about Abraham and how he came to God through faith and how it's a model for us. He says, the words, it was counted to him. It was counted to Abraham. His faith faith was counted to him as righteousness. He says, those words were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He said, Jesus was delivered for your sins, for your trespasses. He was raised for your justification. Therefore, since we have been justified, right? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and then he goes, in light of all this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so in light of that, we have this. Now, we're going to kind of, in some ways, kind of work backwards through this verse this morning. And kind of really turn it over every which way and really examine it and bring in some other verses and look at it. There's three things I want us to look at about peace, the peace with God this morning. We're going to talk about the need we have for peace with God. We're going to talk about the way to have peace with God. And we're going to talk about the requirement for peace with God. So first of all, the need for peace with God. If you just pulled this one verse out of the Bible, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that little part. That's a very popular verse that you may have heard before. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we just pull that out of the Bible, it raises a lot of questions. Like, why do I need peace with God? And why do I only have it through Jesus Christ? Why why do Christians have it, but why doesn't everyone have it? Like, what's the deal with peace with God? And understand here, Paul is talking not about a subjective peace, I don't believe, but an objective peace. He's talking about more than a feeling. Not that the feeling's not important. The feeling follows the object. But he's talking about an objective surety of peace with God. But everyone doesn't have this objective peace, this fact. Some people might even have a feeling and not have the fact. They might feel at peace, but they might not be at peace at all with God. But Christians, Christ followers, have peace with God, he says. But we didn't always have it. There is a need for peace to be made between God and between man humanity is at enmity at war in a sense with God that's the very essence of the first two chapters of Romans look at Romans 1 verses 18 through 23 I'm going to read this to you Romans 1 verses 18 through 23 very beginning of the book the apostle Paul writes for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men have you ever done anything ungodly Have you ever done anything unrighteous? He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all this, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We we push the truth down. We ignore the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. We turn our back on the truth. He says, they suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. He's saying, listen, there are certain things that you can just know about God, because God has written it in the sky. God has made it obvious through His creation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So he says, just in what God's made, you can see his power and his eternal divine nature. So he says, they are without excuse. His point is this, no one has an excuse for not loving and worshiping and adoring the one true God. Not a single person on the face of the planet. You say, what about, there's no person that you can find on the face of the planet that has an excuse for not responding to God in grateful, true worship. You say, why? Because he says, just through creation, there's enough there that we all know that he's real. We all know that he's God. he's, He's written it within creation. There's enough revelation out there through creation to show us the knowledge of God, but there's not enough there to save us. Because of our sin nature, there's only enough there for us to rebel against and reject. That's why we need a Savior. Look at verse 21 of that chapter. says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we rejected God. We didn't treat Him as God. We rejected His godness. Verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things worshipping the creation instead of the creator. We see that in our own culture with the exaltation of 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 sexuality and 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 the indulgence in the flesh. We we it's a worship of what? The pinnacle of God's creation, humanity many times. Worship of man, worship of ourselves many times even, but worshipping the creator or creation instead of the creator. And so in all this, what in Romans chapter 1, what he's saying is, listen, man is sinful. Man has done sinful things. And listen, God's not neutral towards that. He's saying his wrath is revealed against that. God's gonna, and he goes on in chapter 2 and talks more about this. And it's full of it, in, of this information in the first few chapters there of Romans about the wrath of God against sin. And the point here is this no one is neutral with God. Some people think they are. They think they haven't chosen a side, right? And so they're not against God. They have no problem with God in their mind. So therefore, I'm just kind of indifferent. I'm just kind of neutral towards God. But there's no neutrality. There's no such thing as neutral. You can't be neutral. Now, I understand a little bit about that. I grew up in Alabama, as most of you know. We traveled back there uh, this past week to go see family for Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, while I was there, we, I went with my, my brother-in-law to the Iron Bowl, the Alabama-Auburn football game while we were there. And when you grow up in Alabama or you move to Alabama, there's one question you ask, when you answer when you're old enough to be asked a question. And that is simply this. Who are you for? Now somebody asks you that here and you wouldn't necessarily know what they're talking about. But in Alabama, everybody knows what they're talking about. In fact, even living here, I can meet people who aren't from Alabama. When they find out I'm from Alabama, one of their first questions is, so who are you for, Alabama or Auburn? Like, Why do you care? You know? <laughs> what difference does it make, right? But people want to know. And nobody's neutral. I I was born into a family that didn't give me much of a choice, to be honest with you, by God's grace. I'm just kidding. But (laughs) but seriously, I mean, these people grow up in it. I know there's some of that here with Florida and Florida State and Miami and all the different teams. And in Alabama, though, I mean, there's just, that's, it's just, man, it it just infiltrates the place. And there's nobody that's neutral hardly, except for those Five people in Alabama that say they pull for both teams, and they should have to pay higher taxes or something for that. But but that's not, you know, there's no neutrality. And there's certain things in life that you understand that. You just have to make a choice. But with this, with God, there's a default mode, and default is war. You and I were born with a sin nature. He gets into that later on in chapter 5, the nature of Adam. And ever since Adam sinned, everybody that's been born into the world has had a nature bent towards sin. And so we're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice. We we sin because we're sinners. It's in our spiritual DNA. It's who we are apart from Christ. It is our very identity at our core. We're created in God's image, but that image has been warped by the fall. And so we're bent towards sin. We're not neutral towards God. We are against God. We're dead in our sins, the Bible says. Romans 5.10 says, we just read earlier, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were enemies of God. Colossians 1.21, Paul says, you once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We were alienated from God and hostile in mind towards God. That's not neutral. Nobody's neutral with God. Think about it this way. The Bible paints the, the story of humanity in this light. There is one God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, knowing everything, eternal, holy and perfect and righteous and just and good. That someone is God. And He decided to make creatures and people to worship Him, to make much of Him. These humans were made in God's image. To represent him on earth. To resemble him in some ways as they steward creation that he made for his glory. And those little creatures that he made out of dirt rejected him. Rejected the omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, creator, just, holy God. They turned on him. Chose sin over him, chose self over him, and in doing such, declared war with the omnipotent, omniscient, holy, just, perfect God of all the universe, the great I Am, as the Old Testament reveals him. The one who spoke, and the Bible says, mountains burst out of the ground, who flung stars into space with just words. Now let me ask you, how many wars do you think he's lost? Not a one. Undefeated. Undefeated. Not lost to war. There is a need for peace. We don't want war with God. May thank you do, but we don't. And if you're saved today, you need to realize that you were apart from God at one time and have been brought into a relationship with Him. Believers need to be reminded that we were never neutral with God. And if you're not a Christ follower today, you need to know that there's no neutrality with God. And you're not neutral with God today. There's no Switzerland in this room. We're either with Him or against Him. And we can only be with Him through Christ. See, we need to understand as Christians that we have friends that think they're neutral with God. They think they just, they've decided not to decide and that that's okay. That they—that They don't get it. They, they don't get that their sin problem creates a real problem. And it's more than just the damage that they see in their life through broken relationships and issues that get created because of our sin. But there's actually a rupture between them and God and that's going to end in eternal wrath one day unless something is done to bridge the gap. And so we're the people that understand something that humanity has chosen war against God and needs peace. And we have to understand that, especially this Christmas season. As we celebrate the Prince of Peace, there's a need for peace with God. And the good news is, number two, there is a way to peace with God. We have peace with God, he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's debate here about the original language. There is a, in the Greek, and it's, it's worth spending a little time just to explain what the debate is. There is a one character difference in the Greek word here where he says we have peace that can be the difference in this being translated we have peace or let us have peace. Big difference there. Subtle. To say we have peace with God or to say let us have peace with God. And while most manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts we have where people copied down the Bible in the original language are actually, they say, let us have peace. But most translations you'll notice, as the ESV I read from or the New American Standard, the New King James or the King James, the NIV, pretty much every major translation I read last week say we have. And that's because the internal evidence of the passage, the context supports that more fits it better because of the language now here's the thing both are true in scripture either way we we have peace with God through Jesus and we're going to see later on we're going about to read verse 10 that kind of supports that we have peace with God through Christ Jesus but at the same time as Christians who have that we need to live that out and enjoy that when let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ we need to enjoy revel in live out and live in light of the fact that we have that so so both are true in the scriptures but personally, the objective seems to be what most people support and what the translators have supported because the internal evidence is there. It's, it's worth pointing that out. Now, verse 10 helps us with this. It shows the fact that this peace we have with God is something the believer has, not just feels. In verse 10, he says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom now we have received reconciliation. That's the theme of the passage. It begins with peace and it ends with reconciliation. This big paragraph here in verses 1 through 11 because that's the major theme going on here in the passage. And and reconciliation is what brings peace. It's, it's, It's a fact. It's something we have. At salvation, the believer is reconciled. The relationship is mended between God and he or she. Reconciliation doesn't mean simply that a war stopped. It means things are as they should be. Like if two friends are fighting. They've had a major disagreement. Somebody's deeply offended the other one and now they're name-calling and they're they're hardly speaking to one another. When they do, it's not kind words. Reconciliation is not when they just stop hating on one another. Reconciliation is when they're friends again. It's when things are as they should be. If a husband and a wife divorce, reconciliation is not when they stop stop saying cruel things about one another, reconciliation would be them getting back together, right? So reconciliation is the putting back together. And he's saying through Christ, the relationship gets put back together. We have peace with God. Now, Robert Mount's commentator from the New American commentator at Commentary has a great quote on this, piece. He says, to have peace with God means to be in a relationship with God in which all the hostility caused by sin has been removed. And it is to exist no longer under the wrath of God. That's what it means to have peace with God. The, the, the hostility that existed, the, the wrath of God hanging over the life has, has been removed because the sin has been removed through Christ. Many believe here Paul's use of the word for peace is the equivalent of the Old Testament word. Because of the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation, the, 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 the equivalent, the Greek equivalent for the word peace here, and the Hebrew equivalent is, is the Hebrew equivalent, most believe, of the Hebrew word shalom. Ken Hempfel writes of that Hebrew word that the fundamental idea behind the word is wholeness in one's relationship with God. It defines a harmony of relationship based upon the completion of a transaction, the giving of satisfaction. It does not mean that we simply have a truce where outward conflict appears, but inner turmoil remains. It is not merely an uneasy ceasefire. It's a holistic peace. It's real peace. It's a peace with God that leads to the peace of God. The wholeness of the relationship has been mended. See, the idea is this. God is. If you're a believer in Christ, God is not simply no longer your enemy. We didn't move from being enemies of God to being neutral with God. God is not simply no longer set on punishing the believer for their sin. He's set on working for your good. Because of Romans 5, we get Romans 8. Because there's peace with God, we get the benefits of peace with God. We've got God working for our good. Working all things towards our good as he makes us more like Jesus. He says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's one way through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice he uses the full name here. I love it. Our Lord Jesus Christ. His Two of them are titles, Lord and Christ, and then Jesus we know is his name that he was given at birth. And Lord points to his deity, that he is God, that he is ruler. That the baby born in the manger that we celebrate this time of year is God in the flesh. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Word is Jesus. And he said, so just Jesus is the eternal Word that existed but for the foundation of the world, he is eternal God. And he says, in the end of John's book, in John 20, verse 28, after Jesus rose from the dead, and there was this guy named Doubting Thomas. Remember Doubting Thomas? And he says, oh, I won't believe unless I touch the scars. And he does. Jesus goes, okay. In John 20, 28, he responds, my Lord and my God. His lordship points to the fact that he is God. And then his name, Jesus, Points to the fact of what he came to do. Jesus means God is salvation or God saves. Matthew 1.21 says he, that she, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. I know Dr. Tom shared that passage with you last week. You'll call his name Jesus, you'll save. He will save his people from their sins it defines what he came to do he came to save people from their sins he came to show that god is salvation he made the way of salvation he takes away sins and he is the christ it means anointed one it's a it's a word for the messiah It's referring to the fact that he is the one that was prophesied about for all those years through the Old Testament in Isaiah and all those other passages that that Messiah, that Son of David, that would come, the one true King. That it is in fact Jesus. So he's saying, "Listen, he is God. He is the one that takes away sins. He is the prophesied one. He is our Lord, Jesus Christ." You read, we read earlier Isaiah nine six, "Unto us a child is born; to us a son is given." The government shall be upon His shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The prophecy was that this Christ, that this Messiah, would bring peace. From His birth, this was proclaimed in Luke chapter 2. We read to you from Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom... He with whom God is pleased. The very angels announced the birth of Christ with great joy and they praised and worshipped God and the point here is that Jesus came. This baby was born so you and I could have that peace with God and only those that are drawn by God's Spirit and place their faith in Jesus will experience this peace with God. Now, I wonder when we talk about this peace at Christmas and Jesus being the Prince of Peace how many people think what peace did Jesus really bring? There's wars all over the world. You can go turn on the news and somebody's blown something up, somebody's shooting at somebody. There's, uh, we are a world filled with war. Where's the peace? All right? I mean, how many people are thinking that? Prince of Peace? So we have to understand what the Bible means and how these things are happening in stages. In Jesus' first advent, in His first coming, He brought peace with God through His death for sinners and His resurrection. He came to reconcile us to God. But the effects of sin still remain. We still have wars and turmoil and sickness and death in a fallen world. But He's promised to come again. And because He came the first time, we know He's coming the second time. Because God fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament that He would come, we know He's going to fulfill the promises too where Jesus said, I'll come back again in his second advent. In this time he will not come as a baby in a manger. He will come as a conquering king riding on a white horse. Ending all wars. Ruling and reigning on earth. There's coming a day where there's actually going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Where the Lord Jesus will rule and reign forever the Bible says. And all believers will live in perfect peace with one another. And only those. Now listen. Only those that gain peace through God. Gain peace with God through Christ. Because of the first advent and they look to Jesus in faith, only those that get that peace that comes because of the first advent will experience peace at the second advent. If we reject Christ that came the first time to die for our sins and to be raised again, when He comes the second time, it will be to judge you. It will be to conquer you. See, if you're a believer who's come to God through Jesus. Paul is writing this in such a way that he, he's building, and we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, man, it is a, it's, really, it's, it's, a, it's a celebration of all we have in Christ. We have peace with God, and we have all the benefits that come with that. And Paul talked about this throughout his writings. In Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20, he wrote to the Colossians, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, his deity, Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We have peace with God through Christ because of the cross of Christ. And in Ephesians 2, Paul said it this way in verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What's he talking about there? Well, to briefly wrap it up. Through Jesus, both the Jew, who had the promises in the Old Testament... And the Gentile who was on the outside looking in, they both can have peace with God through Jesus. And when they both come to God, whether I'm a Jewish person over here and a Gentile over here, and we both come to God through Jesus, we are united as one body, and that's called the church. And so there's horizontal and there's vertical peace. The racial barriers, the Jew and Gentile barriers, those sort of things, all that's broken down into brought into one body called the church because we all have the same peace through the. To the same with the same God, through the same way, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only one way to that peace. He says it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when we travel to see family back in Alabama, like we did last week, our digital maps. We used the little digital maps, as I'm sure many of you do. We we did when we were driving down the road. We did see a family, and they had the big. I was like, they still sell those things. You know, they had the big map stretched across the car. I was like, you know. Um, and so we're, we use the little digital maps on our phone or whatever and plug it in, see where we need to go and all that. And it gives us options, right? We plug in my, my parents' address back in Alabama, and there's like three or four options that come up. And some of them, there's five minutes difference on the projected time. One way, there's like an hour difference. and all, There's all these different options with different times. But here's what I know. Whether I take the more scenic route and go out to Jacksonville and hit the coast for a minute or something... And, get, and spend an extra hour, or whether I take the, the interstate route that's going to take me through Atlanta, or whether I take the scenic route through the more rural part of Alabama, either way, I'm getting to the same place. I can go different ways, but I'm getting there. I might, one might get there faster, one might get there slower, but we're all, getting there, we're all getting to the same. I'm getting to the same place either way. And some people think having peace with God is kind of like that. That you get your, there your way, and I'll get there my way, and it might take me longer, or it might take you longer, but at the end of the day, we're all going to the, getting the same thing in the end. And the Bible says, no, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible is very explicit about that, that there's only one way to have peace with God, and it is through Jesus, and it is only through Jesus. There's no selection option on the map. There's one highway. There's one road. There's one way. There's one door. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question for us is, have we come by that way? And that brings us to the requirement for peace with God. We go back to the beginning of the verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. He says the way you have peace with God, the way you have peace with God through Jesus is... By faith. You, it's because It's a product, a byproduct of the fact you've been justified by faith. Because you're justified by faith, therefore you have peace with God. Faith in who? Jesus Christ, because it's through Jesus Christ. Remember, the first few chapters of Romans deal with man's sin problem that we talked about. How do the guilty go free? How do the guilty get treated as righteous? How do the guilty Not get punished for their sins by a just God. It's the problem that the Bible raises for us. And it is a problem that is only resolved in Jesus. Let me read to you from Romans 3. Romans 3 verses 23 through 26 says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a very well-known verse. Verse 24 says, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood. That word means he satisfied the wrath of God by shedding his blood for us. He absorbed God's wrath for us to be received by faith. The way we receive this payment for our sin, the way we receive this is by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How in the world can you justify a sinner and remain just? How can God be just and punish people that deserve to be punished? And at the same time, how can He justify people that clearly deserve to be punished? How does that happen? It's resolved in Jesus. Because Jesus absorbs the penalty for our sin. God remains just. Sin gets punished. And at the same time, God can justify us because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Now that word justified is a legal term. Think in terms of a courtroom. And it means more than simply, you know... God treats you like you didn't do anything wrong. It means literally to be declared righteous. When the gavel is slammed down over the life of the believer, God says more than not guilty. He says righteous. Righteous. Just as righteous as Jesus. Just as sinless and perfect as Jesus. When God looks at the life of the believer, He looks at them just as though they're just as spotless as His Son. That's what we have in Jesus. That's the kind of peace we have when we're justified by faith. That's what justification is. But it only comes by faith. It doesn't come by trying harder or doing more. Striking a deal with God where if you do enough, He forgets about the past or your mistakes. There's no pleasing God. There's no being right with God apart from faith. The Bible says, without faith it's impossible to please God in Hebrews. And there's no peace with God apart from faith in Christ. See, believer, there was a moment in time that you transferred your faith to Jesus. No one's always been a Christian. The biggest red flag goes up to me when I'm talking to someone and I say, when did you become a Christian? They say, well, I've always been a Christian. The big red flag just goes up. It's impossible. And I understand we may have grown up in Christian homes. We may come to Christ at very early ages to the point that it may be very hard to remember all the details. I get that. But no one's always been a Christian. Everyone's converted. Everyone is converted. The Bible says we're dead in our sins apart from Christ. There is a moment of faith that continues throughout life for every person. Every person begins life with a posture of rebellion against God and at some point has to assume a new posture when they repent and believe in Jesus. And your peace with God is not and has not ever been rooted in your performance. It's not rooted in your performance. It's rooted in Christ by faith. Because being justified is forever. Your peace with God is forever. It's as secure as your salvation. God is eternally for you. You're a believer. You're like, you know, I've had some struggles as of late. And you're a believer, and you know you're a believer, but you know, I've, I've had some battles as of late. I'm not sure how God feels about me. He loves you wildly. He's for you. He supports you. He, 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 he wants better for you. But you have peace with Him. And the terms of peace have been met in Christ Jesus, and there's no undoing that. It's written in His blood. Can't be undone. But for some, there's been no conversion, No justification. So there's no peace with God because there's never been genuine faith expressed in Christ Jesus. And without faith in Christ, you can be moral, religious, you can try hard. You can go, we, can do, we can sing the Christmas carols and go to church and give offerings and go through the motions. And we can serve on committees and, 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 and do all kinds of sorts of ministerial things. We can do all kinds of things without genuine faith in Christ. And with no faith, the verdict over our life stays the same. It's guilty. Not righteous. And you're not at peace with God. The Bible says you're His enemy. And He's never lost a war. And He's not going to lose that one. So there has to be a moment. Not just a moment. There has to be a change where we turn from our sin and we embrace christ as lord and savior believing what he did for us on the cross is enough believing that when he died on the cross he paid for our sins believing that when he rose from the dead it was for our justification believing that what he's done is enough and we transfer all of our rest in him faith means to believe to rest to rely to trust i imagine it like a small child being on the edge of a pool right and dad's out there in the water and he's trying to get the child to jump in the pool for the first time And maybe the child's got water wings on or a life vest or whatever. When I was a kid, it was the water wings. And so let's say he finally works with the courage and the child runs and jumps into his dad's arms, right? Water wings and all, vest and all. That's not a really good picture of faith, right? Because he's still got the water wings on. So if dad doesn't come through, he feels secure on the inside that everything's still okay. He's going to float. But... If the child really trusted dad, he takes off the water rings, he takes off the vest, whatever, and he runs and he jumps in because he just believes, I know I can't swim, but dad's going to catch me. Right? That's a picture of faith. It's, it's all in. And true faith in Jesus takes off every other life vest that we have. Our morality and our good works and all this and all that and our reputation and all everything else that you may have built up. And it takes it all off. And it's Jesus or nothing. All in. Not leaning on anything. Nothing do I bring. Only to the cross I cling. Have you jumped in? Have you genuinely really trusted in Christ? Have you sat down in what He's done? It's life changing. It's life changing. Many times I've noticed people who have a false faith, if you get to talking to them, you can still see the life vest. Oh, they've some, they may have been in church for a long time. But when you ask them about their story, it begins with works. And they never get to Jesus. The vest is on, there's no click yet. Are you still relying on your personal morality, your good works, something you've done? Are you resting in what has been finished by the Lord Jesus? When we rest in Him, when we're justified by faith, when we have peace with God, it radically changes our life. You know, other, sometimes people go on with their lives. They make a profession of faith in Christ. They go on their li- with their lives as if nothing's happened. No change. And my question is, how do you go from being an enemy of omnipotent, all-powerful God to having peace with the Holy God of the universe and stay exactly the same. How do we have peace with God that He makes with us through Christ and then we just keep firing bullets the rest of our lives like we're still at war with Him? I don't get it. When, when, when there's genuine faith, when there's genuine peace, when the relationship is right again, there's change, not perfection. Not saying there's not struggles, but there's struggles. But there, there's a new direction with our life, and God's at work in our life, and He's bringing about repentance in our life, and He's working in our life, and we can't just continue down the same lost path like nothing's changed, and call that peace with God. You know, I imagine it like this: peace with God. Imagine you walk up to a big old home you're thinking about buying that big old home, and it's your dream home, right? And that is symbolized by peace. Peace with God is symbolized by that. That's the place everybody wants to be in that home. It's where you want to be. Who doesn't want to have peace with their creator? And there's one door in this particular home, though. And that door is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one way in. And the only key that unlocks that door is faith. Only way you go through the door is you go through by faith. It's the only way. But once you're in the house, you have access to, and you have the privileges of to everything that's in the house. You get to live there in the state of being at peace with God, and you've got all the benefits comes with that if you're in christ today you're in the house and you've got all the benefits that come with being at peace with god all the stuff that he talks about in romans chapter 5 that we're going to get into the next couple of weeks all the stuff throughout the bible when you have a real genuine relationship with god through christ god working for your good the holy spirit living in your life all that is yours because you have peace with god through christ and listen peace with god's just the beginning all that other peace that we talked about in the intro You can have that too. You can have the peace of God. There's a difference. Philippians 4 talks about this. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He's saying it's possible to have peace of God, to have a comfort and a peace and assuredness as you walk through life by faith, even in the midst of difficult times. But that's only for the people who are in Christ, who have peace with God through Christ. You can have the peace of God. You can have peace with yourself. Maybe your past torments you, your conscience, your guilt. And I know there are things that we can do that once we do them, they're done. I get that. But I also know that that there are people that are are miserable. They have no inner peace. And they struggle with guilt and shame. And that is only removed in Jesus. And many times when we don't have that, it's because there's no peace with God. That's the real issue. The other's a symptom. You can have peace with others, you'll pursue peace with others. You know, people at peace with God want to be at peace with others. When things are, are right vertically between us and God, we long for things to be right between us and others horizontally. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As peacemakers, we know how people can have peace with God, so we want to make peace. We want people to be at peace with God through Jesus, and we want to be people of peace in our relationships with others. That's why Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As long as it depends on you. Sometimes we've done all we can do, and people are just going to be difficult. Paul got that. Sometimes you've done what you can do. But as long as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. My point is simply this. When things are right between us and God, we will want things to be right between us and others and we'll pursue that as best we can. Because we're in the house. These things and the pursuit of them, though, begins with having peace with God through Jesus. And if you have that, you're you're supposed to enjoy it. You're supposed to celebrate it. You're supposed to live in light of it. And... Pursue peace with others and urge others to have the peace with God that you have. Letting them know that there's no neutrality with God. Shodding your feet with the gospel of peace. Enjoying the wonderful benefits of your blood-bought relationship with God this Christmas season. And if you do not have that, before anything, first and foremost, more than anything else you need today, you need peace with God. And that only comes through Jesus. Let's pray.